Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. I'm Melvin Brooks. I've come to stop the show. Just a ham whose mind is looks, but in your hearts I'll grow. I'll tell you gags. Sing your song, happy little snappy tune to roll along out of my mind. Won't you be kind and please love Melvin Brooks. I always got a big hand. That's the song Mel wrote to begin his comedy act when he was just a kid in a hotel in the Catskill Mountains. From there, he went on to write for the great Sid Caesar. And in the writer's room for that show, he met Carl Reiner, And together, they created the phenomenal 2,000-year-old man comedy album. Then Mel wrote The Producers, won an Oscar for Best Screenplay. And after that, nothing could stop him. At the age of 95, Mel is as saucy as ever. Maybe a little more willing to reveal more of himself now than he has in the decades we've been friends. For me, the mind of Mel Brooks is a silver globe in a cosmic pinball machine. It zigs and zags its way to a punchline, but always ricocheting off deep and passionate concerns along the way. Step with me into the world of Mel. Mel, this is so great to be talking with you today. You know, we just, this past week, we've been listening to Max Brooks, who, as you know, is your son. Yeah, as I remember, still remember he's my son. (laughs) He was a great warm-up act for you. You know, he's... uh... It's strange. You make a you make a child, and it becomes a person in its own right. It's a very strange thing. It's like uh, a, a bit of a miracle. He's a good writer. He's a good talker. Yeah, and he's a good person. He is. And is it true that he's responsible for you writing this wonderful memoir that you didn't want to write? I hear. Well, no. I thought it would be a pain in the ass to write, and, and you <laughs> know. too much. Too much writing. Yeah, too much but, writing. But he said, you know, just tell those stupid stories you told me all when I was growing up. He says, <laughs> just one after another. I said, well, half of them are lies. He says, well, they don't know that, you know. Just, <laughs> you know, just. Hey, I, I, I suspect that little conversation didn't quite yeah. happen that way. No. You know what? This is reminding me of talking to you like this. Yeah. How wonderful it was to listen to your audio book. The audio version of the book you wrote. Oh, oh good. It, you know, it was, you know, hard and and fun to do it. It's very hard to read a book. I've done it a few times. It, it is. You know, I wrote the book and I said, I guess I, I guess I should be the person to read it. You know, 
I said, it's going to be a chore. And it was a chore, but sometimes I had a lot of fun when I would do different voices or do the Jews in the mountains or do, you know. That's was, the thing that makes the audio book so great is we get a performance from you. We don't yeah. just get the stories you're telling. Yeah. We get the accents. You even sing a little. You quote a line you wrote and you sing it. It's great. And we get that that delivery. You know, a lot of people, I think, are aware of you as a spontaneous performer. Because you, you're, you're mm. the improvs you did with the 2,000-year-old man. That's true. Totally spontaneous. Yeah. But you also have this analytic mind. Mm. And the way you analyzed how your being a drummer as a kid helped you in comedy, I thought was very interesting. The rim shot, for instance. Yeah. Yeah, that was like, uh, you know, the punchline of a joke would be the rim shot and playing the drums. And, you know... A rim shot is achieved by taking a stick, a drumstick, and smacking it against the middle of the snare drum and the rim of the snare drum, which makes uh, makes a nice thwack, T-H-W-A-C-K-K-K, thwack. And that's, <laughs> that's a rim shot. And, you know, uh, and you just... When you tell a, a joke or a story, really, for instance, I'll, I'll tell you a story and, and I'll come to the rim shot. I'll steal this story from Myron Cohen, who was a, who was a Jewish comic in the mountains. He was wore, great. Yeah, it was really funny. Guy goes into a grocery store and says, I would like a half a pound of lox. I would like some cream cheese. I'd like, huh? He stops. He looks at the store and says, Sir, I don't mean to pry, but I see your shelves are covered with boxes of salt. You have salt on, on the first shelf, on the second shelf, on the top shelf. Your whole grocery store is covered with boxes of salt. Do you sell a lot of salt? And the grocery owner turns to him and says, Me? I tell you the truth, if I'll sell a box of salt a week, it's a lot. I don't sell a lot of salt. But the guy that sells me salt, boy, can he sell salt. <laughs> and that's and rim yeah, shot. Rim shot. Boy. <laughs> yeah. What what I love about the rim shot and how you have incorporated it, at least in your your mind and your work, mm. is that you were a drummer as a kid. Yeah. I enjoyed I loved being a drummer. I loved I just loved rhythm. Ever since I was born, I loved rhythm. And nothing incorporates rhythm better than, a, than a, you know, being a drummer. It was, and I didn't know till I read your book that the name Brooks in Mel Brooks came because of the shape yeah. of the drum. <laughs> even, the drum. Even the name came from the drum. Well, I, you know, I decided I was always Melvin Kaminsky. And I never minded being Melvin Kaminsky because I assumed, like everybody who lived at 365 South 3rd Street, South 3rd and Hooper in Williamsburg, in the Williamsburg section of Brooklyn, I assumed I would be in the garment center. And Kaminsky is a perfect name for somebody working in the garment center. I would I would start by pushing a rack of clothes. I would learn to be a cutter. I might I might even learn to be a pattern maker. I might even learn to be a salesman. I might even you know learn learn to be a boss. 
I mean, that's, those are the steps in, in being the garment center. So you were, at that time, you, were, you might have gone into the garment district business, but you were a drummer and decided to put your name on the drum. How did, how did you get Brooks out of Kaminsky? I was, I was, you know, going to be a drummer. And in those days, drummers put their name on the drum. I was It was your mother. What was your mother's name? Brookman. And I was going to make it Brookman. But so I, I got the Mel, I got the Brook, I had the M, and it didn't work. There it wasn't was no, enough room? There wasn't enough room for M-A-N. Brook was fine. So I threw an S at the end. And strangely enough... For the last 60 or 70 years, it worked. I liked the name, so I stayed with it. I was a male. I was the only male comic in the Borscht Belt. Every other comic in the Borscht Belt was mostly Jackie. <laughs> Jackie Vernon, Jackie... Everybody, Jack. My name is Jackie. They say I'm wacky. They had this... <laughs> <laughs> this opening song, you know. Did you did you have an opening song? Well, I you know I had I didn't have a Jackie because I was Mel, but I came up with a, a rather startling and different crazy opening song. I started with "Here I am, I'm Melvin Brooks, I've come to stop the show." Just a ham whose minus looks, but in your hearts I'll grow. I'll tell you gags, sing your songs, happy little snappy tune to roll along out of my mind. Won't you be kind and please love Melvin Brooks? I always got a big hand, you know. The jokes were lousy, but the opening song always worked. Always worked. Yeah. Yeah. If you beg for love yeah. like that, you can't yeah. miss. How can you beg for love? I didn't realize. You're right. I was begging <laughs> for love. Yeah. The other thing I didn't know until I read your book is that you fenced in high school. Was it high school? Yeah, it was. It was. I was in the fencing team. My brother, my oldest brother, Irving, was captain of the fencing team at Brooklyn College. He was really good. Huh. And and he had these apes, these swords, and these masks at home. And so he, I put one on. I said, T -t please, Irving. He said, well, you know, I was only 13 or so. He said, all right, and thrust parry. And he taught me <sighs> as if I were one of the three musketeers. He, he taught me how to, how to do all of that. But what I love about that is you said that when you were training with your coach, mm -hmm. that if you fenced somebody better than you, the next day the coach said, you're better today because you gained from fencing with somebody better than you. And you yeah, said true. that's what yeah. happened in the writing room mm -hmm. when you were writing for Sid Caesar. Yeah, absolutely. You all, you all were fencing with each other with the jokes, apparently. We were fencing very good. You're right. Because... You know, we had geniuses, talented people like Mel Tolkien, our head writer, who was really talented, who taught me how to read, not how to read, what, what to read. He threw a book down and said, look, you're an animal. You're from Brooklyn. You're just an animal. Read, uh, read this book and learn somehow let let it seep in, and you'll know what really great, profound comedy writing is. 
And the book was Dead Souls by a Russian writer by the name of Nikolai Gogol, G-O-G-O-L. And it was, it was, it was a miracle. I mean, reading that book showed me how comedy could be really richly, profoundly, humanly funny and touching and, and, and moving as well as just flat out, you know, silly. So I, I gravitated toward, um, what I considered important comedy. Uh, everybody thinks about Blazing Saddles as being farting jokes and, uh, you know, uh, punching out a horse and, and uh, just, just a, a crazy comedy. It's not so crazy. It has to do, there's an engine underneath, like Gogol always had an engine underneath about the human condition. The engine underneath Blazing Saddle is racial prejudice. Without, without them cursing the black sheriff and having to fight his way, you know, to gain their respect, uh, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have, you know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have worked. And, and so, uh, in a way, Gogol taught me that, you know, comedy can be important as well as silly. So, mm. and I tried to make most of my movies have some kind of, I don't know, a, a plot, a story that, that was um, a little more profound than just gags. That serious side of you is something that I know because I've, I've known you known you for over 50 years. Yes, you have. And we met, do you remember we met 60 years ago? Oh, my God. On a late night radio show in New York. With yeah. Barry Gray, Barry Gray oh, show. Oh, gee, you remember? Oh, my God. I remember it very, I remember how generous you were because mm. I had just he, opened in a play that it. night and you had seen the play and it was a terrible play. Yeah. And you said, this play is great. I know funny and this play is funny. Yeah. And and it really helped us because it, it didn't close until the next night. Oh, I, mean, I kept it open another night. Another <laughs> whole day. Yeah. And you were good, except you told me a crazy story that you're, you were wearing a robe in the play and the robe was on fire that one, the, one The night. robe caught fire. Why? Well, I didn't know how to smoke. And I, w I had a monologue. I was on stage all by myself. And I was supposed to be smoking a cigarette. Yeah. I was supposed to light a match to light the cigarette. And I right. did, and I, I waved the match and put it out mm -hmm. and held it at my side. I didn't know that the tip of the match was still glowing. <laughs> and the robe was, because it wasn't much of a, an expensive production, it was uh. a cheap robe made out of acetate. Uh. And it caught uh. fire like, a, like flash paper in a magician's hand. Uh. And I'm a sheet wow. of flames. And I think to myself, <laughs> boy, this is going to get a big laugh. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, yeah. It might, I it, was me, get a laugh. it might cost me my life, but it's worth it. I got to <laughs> yeah. get a laugh. Right. They, they didn't laugh. They thought they were going to see somebody uh, die in front of them. Oh, amazing. But you were so generous. And then later, we got together on a very nice little throwaway project that has lived to this day. Free to be you and me. It, 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 you know... You directed that, and you directed my I, sketch. Was so yeah. you were talking about generous, not mm -hmm. only on that late night radio show, you were generous to let me direct you. Mm -hmm. And well, you I, did a, I yeah. appreciated that. You're a natural director. I mean, you, you know how things should fit, how the puzzle should come together. And, and I was very happy and... I, I did I ever thank you for directing me on that? Well, thank you. It was, it was, 
Thank it you. Was, it was a great. It's a, that record is still around. Still around. New generations are discovering it. People come up to me who were nowhere near born when it came out, yeah. and they they had listened to it as kids. <sighs> and and it, one of the things you were so good on that record doing was improvising. Oh yeah, and you're you're such a natural improviser. I loved I, I loved Ed Lib and improvising, and I was bitterly disappointed when Carl and I were successful. When, Tell me why. Bitterly disappointed. I didn't want to be successful because being successful meant then you would be you would doing you'd be doing TV shows. They only gave us a few minutes on these shows. Not enough time for Carl and I to fool around. For instance, he had to know what to ask me, and I had to I had to know what I was going to be asked, and he had to know what the punchline was. So there was no spontaneity in, in it right. at all. Right, all, all the improv that you had built built your relationship on could, was not possible. It was right. It was no fun. But making but, the records were fun because we would. We'd get a studio audience, just a, a lot of people around, maybe a hundred people. And I never knew, I never knew what Carl was going to ask me, and he never knew what I was going to answer. And those records are funny because of that. The joy, you know. He said, you know, getting a getting a talented comic trapped like a rat, you'll get the funniest. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I was tra I was like a trapped rat. And would you, when you would start to answer, at which point did you know what your what your rim shot was going to turn out to be? I never, and I did. I really never knew. It was it was a surprise to me as it was to Carl, because suddenly I saw saw the angle. I said, "Boom! That's where I go." You know, really a triumph. You Can know? you remember yeah. the first question he ever asked you when you started doing this routine? Yes, the first question I think he asked me was he he ran into the writers' room with a tape recorder. It actually was a wire recorder uh, preceding yeah, a that tape was the recorder. First kind. Yeah. And he said, with the microphone, he said, I understand you're 2,000 years old, blah, blah, blah. Uh, did you know Jesus? <laughs> that was his first question. Did you know Jesus? I said, thin, right? Thin. Wore sandals, right? 12 guys hanging around him, right? Wore like a sheet instead of a regular coat. Uh, they never bought anything. They came in the store. And these apostles, they hung out. They asked for water. I gave them water. You know, it was just, it was true and silly, and a little, a little stupid, and it was just lovely. You know, and what, what were the writing sessions in the writers' room for the Sid Caesar show? Were they like improvs like that? Would exactly you, would you spar with each other with. Things that came up bouncing off the other people. First, we needed a premise. Once we got a premise, then we had to fill it in with what would happen within that premise and and jokes and uh, and there were sparkling talents. There was at one point we had Larry Gelbart, who wrote, created with the you know one of the greatest of your your show, your great show, Match. Yeah. And Larry was the fastest mouth in the West. He could nobody nobody was faster or funnier than Larry Gelbart. And then there was Doc Simon, you know, Neil Simon. Neil was very shy. And he 
Carl would sit next to Doc Simon. We called him Doc. And, uh, and, and Neil Simon would whisper something in Carl's ear and Carl would jump up and say, Doc's got it. And, you know, <laughs> and then, and then he'd shout and it was always good. Doc Simon and Larry Gelbart were kind of lo- loved me and loved what I might, might say or do. So uh, they always followed me around at lunch. One time we had lunch together and, uh, they uh, saw three nuns coming toward us up 57th Street. And Larry said, Mel, please, no. Don't, don't go for it. Don't. And Doc said, you know, hold it in, hold it in, you know. <laughs> you know? And I said, I'm, no, I'm not, I, I think I can handle it, you know. But as they approached, I, of course I couldn't handle it. And I said, get out of those costumes. The sketch is out. I yelled, yelled. They didn't know what I was yelling at them, but they hit they hit the ground. You know, uh, they followed me around. I mean, they just we went into a store once, and the window in the store, it was like a ninety nine cent store, had a hundred little toy microscopes, little toy, you know, and they were ninety nine cents a piece. So I went in, they followed me in, and I said to the owner, uh, I'm a research chemist at Johns Hopkins uh, University, and I'm working on, on a new new type of disease where where the it's it, the viruses are so small that only a, a, a special microscope can eliminate them. You can see them. And I really I really need a I really need a good microscope because the research is very important to saving people from this disease. And I said, those microscopes in the window, are they good? <laughs> he said, they're great. I said, okay, I'll take three. <laughs> they got a nice reward by following me, you know. When we come back from our break, Mel Brooks tells me how the actress and his future wife, Anne Bancroft, had to slip him 20 bucks so he could pay for a dinner date, and how he ignored the studio boss who wanted to fire Gene Wilder from what perhaps was Mel's finest movie, The Producers. Clear and Vivid can be downloaded for free because it's supported by our sponsors and by, as they say, people like you. But there are no people like you. You're you. We want to make sure you know about patreon.com slash clearandvivid. That's where, if you love hearing from the extraordinary guests we have on our shows, you can become a patron and get early access to special videos. And at the highest tier, you can join me in our monthly get-together online. I think you'll find out that the listeners to our podcast are often as much fun to hear from as our guests. We're grateful to you all. Thank you. And don't forget to check out patreon.com slash clearandvivid. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. 
Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Mel Brooks. What I didn't get when I got to this part of your life in the book was that you met Anne, and she was already Anne Bancroft, starring on Broadway. Oh, yeah. And I think you had already made your mark as a writer on the Sid Caesar show. I made my mark as a writer, but I wasn't at, at all known, you know. But you didn't have hardly any money at the time. Oh, yeah. I in really, fact, you were with Ann at a Chinese restaurant. You took her out to dinner. I did, and she slipped me 20 bucks under the table. She, she to, gave you the 20 bucks. To pay, to pay for it. So The best part of that story is when you got outside. You got outside, she slapped me. I left a $6 tip. And she slapped me and said, don't be so generous with my money, you know. And I, <laughs> I, that was 45 years of the, of the best time of my life, living, living with Anne and marrying Anne. It was so, so great. It was, can't tell you, we, we, uh, we went together for a couple of years, and I, I didn't, Mar- I didn't think of marrying her. I couldn't marry her because I, she was the breadwinner. She, I was living at her apartment, living at her small house on 11th Street. And uh, I, I couldn't take on that responsibility because I had nothing solid. And then came Get Smart. I sold, together with Buck Henry, we sold Get Smart and I knew I'd be getting money in for at least a season, maybe more. And then I asked it. That was in 1964. Well, we, and I, I, I'd ask her to marry me. And she said, "About time or something." <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was great. It was great. In your relations with studios. I learned something about how to handle objections from a studio. Oh. Because no matter how good your material is, somebody's got a better idea at yeah, the studio. Absolutely. And instead of mounting a counterattack, I'm amazed that you got away with saying yes. Yes. That was that was the trick. It started with my first movie, the third day of seeing dailies. Joseph E. Levine, a wonderful guy, and he was responsible for making the, giving us the money to make, make uh, the producers. First of all, he changed, he said, it can't be Springtime for Hitler. That was the original title, Springtime for Hitler. He didn't want Hitler. He said none of the, his friends, none of the exhibitors would take Hitler on the marquee. So he said, could we change it to something else? I said, Make it the producers. It's ironic. It's simple. It's unforgettable. It's a good name. So, third day of seeing the dailies of of the producers, he said, "I, you know, change. Get rid of that funny looking guy with the curly hair. I'll give you another twenty five thousand. He wanted me to fire and replace Gene Wilder, 
And uh, he was the heart and soul of the producers. And he was such a beautiful, you know, on the on the hoof, Leo Bloom. You couldn't, I, if I looked all over the world, I wouldn't have found a better Leo Bloom than Gene Wilder. And I, when he said, you got to get rid of that, that Leo Bloom, the Leo Bloom guy, this team. He says, he's funny looking and he's, uh, I, we need a leading man there. I said, okay, he's fired. You won't see him again. Because I knew he was going off for a vacation for two weeks and he went away and I, I never did. Then later on Blazing Saddles, I got maybe 15 or 20 notes, no farting, uh, no N-word. You can't punch a horse. You can't. I listened to head of of, of, uh, of Warner Brothers then, and I said to to him, "It's out. It's out. You're right. You're right." I always agreed with them and never changed a thing ever, ever. <laughs> and, and you know they forget. They forgot. You know, and that was my secret. Agree. Don't fight them. Don't fight the studio. Say you're absolutely right. It's out, you know, you'll never see it again, and it was never out, you know. You know, one of the things that I loved about your description of your comedy was that people often refer to your comedy as Jewish comedy, and you make a distinction between Jewish comedy and New York comedy. Oh, yeah. There is. And I... Just because you're a Jew doing the comedy... They say it's Jewish comedy, and and it, it really isn't. Jewish comedy is, um, I would call it shtetl, which is a Jewish word for village. Shtetl comedy is Jewish comedy. The comedy that I did, I always knew, was New York comedy. It had... It had drive. It had rhythm. It had a... It had the miraculous beat... Of the of New York, it was hard comedy, drowning with insult. It was New York comedy, Street. unlike say Sholem Aleichem, right? Which was exactly gentle, gent, gent, That was gentle shtetl, your village comedy. Yeah. But, but our comedy, especially the Jackies and me in the Borscht Belt, you know, <laughs> New York, where you were a tumbler. I was a pool tumbler. Yeah. What's the definition of tumbler? Tumbler is a, a kind of upsetter, making people sit up and pay attention. That's the tumbler. Uh, they'd be sleeping after after lunch around the pool, and I would wear I would take a big I'd wear a big alpaca black coat with a derby, and I'd fill up card a cardboard suitcase two two of them with rocks that so they'd be heavy. I go to the end of the diving board, and I'd say, "I, uh, I don't want to live. I don't want to live. Business is bad. I don't want to live." And I would jump into the pool, and they would scream. Of course, everybody would be laughing, but I wouldn't let my props. I was at the bottom of the pool with the with the suitcase with the rocks, <laughs> looking up at the Gentile lifeguard. The Jews didn't know how to swim, so we had a we had a Gentile, and. Arthur and I would say I would wait for a blonde, this beautiful blonde author to swim down and save me, and he was laughing his head off. And yeah, and he, <laughs> what, who got the suitcase? Yeah, well, yeah, well, I held the suitcases. He got me up with them, you know. 
They were my props. I wouldn't let them go. Yeah. Well, that's I never heard that story. Yeah, that's true, great. It's true. It's the, I, There's so many wonderful stories like this in your book and your yeah. audio version of the book. I hope everybody buys it. I hope you make a million dollars. I'll settle for half that. <laughs> you know, in show business, you never succeed if you go for money. It doesn't work. Mm. You only make it if you fight the present current, whatever they think is right, you know, and you know is wrong, and you shout it. You are the jester. You got to whisper into the king's ear, something's wrong in Denmark. You got to whisper into his ear. Every time I wrote a picture, the first thing, I'd, I'd make a big sign in the writer's room. And it's and the sign was, first, we laugh. If we don't laugh, it ain't in. You know, well, yeah. we, you know, because a lot of people, oh, they'll like that. that, that that's going to work. That's a good idea. You know, bullshit. You've got to hold your stomach and laugh or else it really isn't funny. So what do you do when you're writing alone? You don't, do you, do you actually laugh at it or do, are you missing the camaraderie that's around a good, you? That's a good question. Test it against other people. I don't know. I, I do. I, I, uh, I try it out right away. Anne was very good. If I got a laugh out of Anne, it was in. She was tough. Yeah. She'd often say, not funny, and move away. <laughs> you know, move away. <laughs> Just move away. Move away. Not funny. She'd go to cook a spaghetti. Okay, all right. <laughs> but, you know, but, but often, you know, I had, I had friends, you know, and, and I would try it out. I'd pick up the phone. I'd say, what do you think it is? They'd laugh. Okay, that was it. But first we laugh. But a lot of times I wrote with the gang, and I loved writing. A couple of times, like with the 12 Chairs or History of the World, I didn't need any help. I, I knew, you know, because History of the World was chapters, and I could be a different person writing each chapter, a different writer. And you're yeah. writing a sequel to History of the World Part 1 called History of the World Part 2. We Is are, this true? Even as, even as we speak, Alan, it, it's being done with, with with Nick Kroll and Wanda Sykes and Ike Barinholtz and Dave Press, Pressman. There's a lot of good writers bunching up and writing, uh, taking the mickey out of history, telling the, the and truth. And so you're, you're back in the writer's room. We're back in the writer's room. The writer's room <laughs> turns out to be just 10 Zoom rooms. Unfortunately, you can't go and you can't... I can't see Neil Simon's face. I can't see I can't see Woody jumping up with with the great idea. I can't see Larry I, or, or the great Mel Tolkien. It's it's so it's terrible. I can only see Nick and Wanda and I I can only see them on Zoom and and have to suffer that because there's something about the 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 connection, the real connection in a writer yeah. in a writer's room where Yes, so they're not ashamed. I remember I once threw out a joke, and Joe Stein said it stinks, and I said you're right, <laughs> you know, you're right. Let's correct, you know. And it was it was good, it, you know. It was great to have, you know, writers treated each other savagely. It was, you know, whoa, are you crazy? That's the worst joke I ever heard. I mean, we just break each other's hearts twenty times a, a, an hour, you know. But it's like the fencing, and you got better. Yeah. When yeah. you got 
fenced with, with by a by a writer who's really yeah, good. Exactly. You know, I said before that you were analytical. I've I've noticed that about you. Have you analyzed ever the real the fundamental basis of your professional life? What is funny? Why do we think something's funny? Do you, the philosophers have tried to answer that question. Freud tried to answer mm-hmm. it. Did you ever think about that or did you just do it? I, did, I think the latter. I think I just did it and then later stepped back and said, oh, that was good. That was funny. But I couldn't, I, I mean, I, I could never analyze what comedy is because it's magic, you know. You never know yeah. when it's going to happen, wh- how it's going to explode, you know, and what the circumstances will be. It's all, comedy Comedy is miraculous, you know. It Out of nowhere comes something that is funny forever. I, I'll never forget, I was writing and I, I called Leah Zappi, my secretary, in to my office because I was writing the biblical section of... History of the his, world. History of, yeah, it was, it was the Bible. And I, I was I was Moses. And I said, what do you think of this? Moses comes out with three huge stone tablets and he, and he starts to speak, hear me, the Lord Jehovah has given you these laws to listen to and abide by. And one falls and smashes at my feet. And I said, these fifth... 15, boom, it falls and smashes. And I stop and say, Oi, and say, 10, 10 commandments. And she <laughs> fell down. She started, she, she grabbed the table for support. She said, <laughs> she grabbed the table. <laughs> and she said, that's, yeah. I said, okay. First we laugh, it's in, right. That's great. I was always worried about being politically incorrect. I, I, oh, I, I, I would grab Richard Pryor, who wrote uh, Blazing Saddles with me, and say, Richard, stop with the N-word. It's too much. It's not nice. He said, it's nice. It's important. The bad guys have to, that's what they call the sheriff. They have to break his heart or else we won't have a triumphant ending. I said, okay, Richard, okay. And I went, went along with him. But he was very brave and very funny. He was the most beautiful, lovable, crazy, funny guy. I miss miss him a lot. You know, I want to talk to you all day, but I don't want to tire you out. Too late. (laughs) Too late. You're too late. We got something to do before we go, if 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 you're game for it. We always end the show with seven quick questions. You don't have to talk a lot. They can be Who, short answers. Did you come up with this idea? Seven, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's always the same seven questions. Okay. And they're roughly to do with communication in a roundabout I'm up, I'm up, way. I'm up for seven questions. Oh, okay. What do you wish you really understood? Uh, business. Who knows what to pay who, how much? It baffles me. Okay. Business. Number, number two. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? You just blurt out, you're full of shit. That's, that's how they get their facts wrong. That's, that's I think, you know. That, that's the most helpful thing you yeah, can do. Yeah, right. Okay, number three. 
What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Uh, it wasn't so strange. It was a good question. And and it was a and I had I had no good answer. And the question was, why the hell did Anne Bancroft marry you? And I didn't I said, I don't know, it was just a lapse of taste, I guess. You know, <laughs> I had no idea. But that was a great question and I couldn't answer. Okay, next one. How do you stop a compulsive talker? I don't know. You just have to say, uh, Hold up a minute, or uh, uh, would would you mind if I got a word in there? Or <laughs> would it break your heart if I had a, if I talked for a minute? You know, yeah, yeah. I mean, you appeal to them, right? Get appeal to appeal to them. Appeal to the appeal to the, good, the goodness in them. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's say you're sitting at a dinner table, and you're next to someone you don't know. Mm-hmm. How do you start up a really genuine conversation? I think you say, is that your fork or mine? And they say, I think it's mine. I said, all right, I'm sorry I used it. Here, take mine. Yeah. And yeah, that's, sorry I used it. Sorry I used it. I think that's a good, a good way to start a dinner conversation. All right, here's one. Here's a good one for you. Alan, you're smart. You're smart and you're lovely. You're terrific. It's so good to see you again. I can't tell I'm you so glad how to happy see you I too. am to see you. And, and, uh, and we've, been, we've been friends through so many years and through so much, and we've lost so many wonderful people like Carl that we loved. I you know, know, we've gone through, through hell with so many people. Okay, but wait a minute. I still got two more questions. Two more Don't questions. On one of them I will answer. <laughs> First one is what gives you confidence? Nothing. Nothing. You you, there is nothing. Nothing. That, nothing gives me confidence. I just, I just, uh, a little voice in me whispers. I shouldn't tell you this, but it's true. A little voice in me whispers, "Fake it, uh, fake it," and I fake it, and there's there's the confidence. But I know how to fake it. Okay, you're going to like this last question. What book changed your life? Oh, well, that was Nikolai Gogol's Dead Souls. It's a masterpiece. He stuck a pen in his heart and didn't have to think and just wrote what was in his heart. It was humanity in every aspect of human behavior. It was God, read Dead Souls. It's hysterically funny, and it's very, very moving. And and that, I aspired to become a writer, somewhat like Nikolai Gogol. I failed, but I I went I went pretty far. So, well, today you stuck a pen in your tongue, and what came out was wonderful. Oh, bless! Thank you, you Mel. Thank you. I Alan. love you. And- Send you lots of love. Big hug. And thanks for doing this. I mean, you know, and, okay. and, and anytime you need, I don't know, if you need an apple, call me. You know, I always have fruit in the house, you know. I can, I'll be ha- happy to take care of you. I love you. This has been fun. I love you. Okay. It's been great. Take Mill. care. Thank Alan. you. You bet. Bye-bye. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. 
And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Aldous Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Mel Brooks' memoir is called All About Me, My Remarkable Life in Show Business. And in it, he hilariously charts his life from his birth in Brooklyn 95 years ago to learning how to improvise comedy in the Borscht Belt to becoming one of the most successful comedy directors of all time. Three of his movies, Blazing Saddles, The Producers, and Young Frankenstein, have been numbered among the top 15 best comedies ever by the American Film Institute. His musical comedy adaptation of The Producers, with music, lyrics, and book by Mel, won a record 12 Tony Awards. There's more, but I'm running out of breath. You'll have to read all about Mel in All About Me. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Erica Huang, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Diego Bojorges. He's a neuroscientist who discovered cells that are a little like taste buds in the lining of the gut. These cells, which he calls neuropods, are able to instantly tell our brains what's happening in our stomachs. So in 2012, I had devised an experiment in which we took out a single uh, neuron from uh, the brain of a mouse and we put them in a dish in the, in the presence of a single one of these uh, neuropod cells from the gut of a mouse. And it was so striking that not only the cells it became they recognized each other and they got closer, but they actually recapitulated this gut-brain connection in the dish. Once they are physically plugged to each other, then the communication happens, you know, from the milliseconds to over time. Here's a very unexpected story about connecting and communicating with a lot to say about how our guts make us feel. Diego Bojorges next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>